Chapter 6, Part 2 of The Greater Life and Work of Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susan Lamar. The Greater Life and Work of Christ by Alexander Patterson. Chapter 6, Part 2. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Work of Christ in the day of the Lord begins with his own people. Two events relating to them are described in the following scriptures. But we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them that fall asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as the rest which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also that are fallen asleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we that are alive, that are left unto the coming of the Lord, shall in no wise precede them that are fallen asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we that are alive, that are left, shall together with them be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Nothing can add to the clearness of this account, nor could comment make more plain supernatural experiences such as these, which we must await until we enjoy one or other of them, as we certainly shall. The resurrection of the departed believer is here placed before the translation of the living. There is a longing to be among those who shall so be caught up in the clouds. But the apostle, for our own sakes, as well as for the sake of those who sorrow over the loss of dear ones, tells us the departed shall come first. Death is the enemy of the human race. This is as true of the believer as of any other the victory over it is always associated with the resurrection it is in a sense a victory for the believer to die in peace and joy but this is not the victory spoken of in the scripture the victory of christ was won at his resurrection the victory of his people over death is won at their resurrection and as satan has the power of death it is their victory over satan the above scripture also plainly teaches us that the resurrection of the believers is to precede that of all others this is mentioned in several other places the following scripture seems emphatic upon this point it describes such a resurrection and i saw thrones and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and such as worship not the beast, neither his image, and received not the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead lived not, until the thousand years should be finished this is the first resurrection blessed and holy is he that hath 
part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. On this passage Alfred writes thus, I cannot consent to distort words from their plain sense and chronological place in the prophecy on account of any considerations of difficulty or risk of abuses which the doctrine of the millennium may bring with it those who lived next to the apostles in the whole church for three hundred years understood them in the plain literal sense and it is a strange sight in these days to see expositors who are among the first in reverence of antiquity complacently casting aside the most cogent instance of consensus which primitive antiquity presents as regards the text itself no legitimate treatment of it will exhort what is known as the spiritual interpretation now in fashion it seems to me that if an in a sentence where two resurrections are spoken of with no mark of distinction it is otherwise in john five verse twenty eight which is commonly alleged for the view i am combating in a sentence where one resurrection having been related the rest of the dead are afterward mentioned we are at liberty to understand the former one figuratively and spiritually and the latter literally and materially then there is an end of definite meaning in plain words and the apocalypse or any other book may mean anything we please i have again and again raised my earnest protest against evading the plain sense of words and spiritualizing in the midst of plain declarations of fact chris Libby thus writes the resurrection power coming from christ through the medium of his word and sacraments tends mainly to the sanctification of and the renewing of the sinner and thus interpenetrates first the spiritual nature of man planting within those who are regenerate a germ for the resurrection of the body then the spiritual life of christ breaks forth into a manifestation in the visible world by revivifying the bodies of those who are sanctified in the first resurrection in the succeeding general resurrection this grand and gradually progressive process of the world's renewal has its fitting consummation as to the subject at large the following comments are given from moses stewart on the apocalypse after investigating this subject i have doubts whether the assertion is correct that such a doctrine as that of the first resurrection is nowhere else found in the scriptures what can paul mean when he represents himself as readily submitting to every kind of suffering and affliction if by any means he might attain to the resurrection from the dead of a figurative resurrection or regeneration paul cannot be speaking for he had already attained to that on the plains of damascus 
of the like tenor with the text seems to be the implication in Luke 14, verse 14. Thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Why the resurrection of the just? This would agree entirely with the view in Revelations 20, verse 5. There is more reason to believe that such is the simple meaning of the words in Luke 14, verse 14, inasmuch as two recent antipods in theology, O'Hanson and DeWitt, both agree in this exegesis. The Apocalypse teaches a twofold resurrection. First, of the saints at the beginning of the millennium, the second of all men at the final consummation. Dr. Robert J. Breckenridge writes, It is commonly alleged that this coming of the Lord is in his glory and all his holy angels with him. For it is repeatedly so declared in the scriptures. Moreover, that the resurrection of the dead will occur at that time, which is true, but not exactly in the sense generally understood, for it is expressly declared by the Apostle John that none but such as he describes will reign with Christ a thousand years or have any part in the first resurrection and that the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years are finished. The first resurrection is also referred to in the following passage. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then they that are Christ at his coming, then cometh the end when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God even the Father. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown comment on this as follows. Every man in his own order. The Greek is not abstract, but concrete. Image from troops, each in his own regiment. Though all shall rise, not all shall be saved. Nay, each shall have his proper place. Christ first, after him the godly who die in Christ in a separate band from the ungodly, then the end, i.e. the resurrection of the rest of the dead. The distinction between the two resurrections is seen in the names applied to each. The one is the resurrection to life, the other to judgment, to shame, and contempt. The distinction between the two resurrections is further observed by the use of the respective phrases, the resurrection from the dead and the resurrection of the dead. The saints are raised out from among the dead, so the word from is always applied to the resurrection of Christ. It will be observed in the above-mentioned passages. This first resurrection is also spoken of as a better resurrection. Christ speaks of they that are 
accounted to attain that world age and the resurrection from the dead. It is spoken of as special, prior, and eclectic. General scriptures about the resurrection must be interpreted in accordance with these special ones. There has been a great change from the days of the apostles in the way the resurrection of the believer has been regulated to the rear, and death brought forward as the hope of the believer. The late Dr. A.J. Gordon thus writes on this subject. Indeed, I may say in proper appreciation, death has very largely usurped the place that belongs to the resurrection. But death, we must remember, is an enemy. It never was and never can be anything but an enemy. It is cruel, repulsive, and humbling. But man has learned to idealize this hideous enemy into a good angel. Indeed, I think it would be no exaggeration to say in the appreciation of many Christians, death has been thrust into the place that belongs to Christ. The crown of welcome, which we should ever be waiting to put upon the head of him who will swallow up death in victory, is put upon the ghostly brow of him who is daily swallowing up life in defeat. The poet Young writes, Death gives us more than was in Eden lost. The king of terrors is the prince of peace. There is little said in scripture as to the state of the departed believer in the so-called the middle state. There are a few words enough to satisfy our longings and to assure us it is well with them. We are told of the dying beggar being carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, and in that we may see all our dear ones so carried and believe we shall be so also. We read that the saints rest from their labors, and so shall we. They are with Jesus, as Paul tells us he longed to be at his departure. We have as the dying malefactor the same promise to be with Christ in paradise. This is about all we are told of the saints in the middle state. For it is not on this our minds or hearts are to be set. It is not to death, but to victory over death we are to look for our hope. The second great event at the coming of Christ is described in these words. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must be put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Death is not inevitable. It has not been an unknown thing that some escape death. There has been one out of each age who so went to be with God. Enoch 
out of the antediluvian age, Elijah, from the Israelitish, and it is believed by some, John, out of the Gospel age, to never die, to miss the pain, and dying, and grave, and the decay, and all, is a consummation to be wished, as we wish for nothing else except salvation and Christ. This will be the happy lot of some. We shall not all die. It is to this strange taking away Christ refers in this passage. I say unto you, in that night there shall be two men on one bed. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. There shall be two women grinding together. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. And they answering say unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Where the body is, thither will the eagles also be gathered together. This is the individual aspect of this wonderful change from life on earth to life in heaven. It will be instantaneous all over the world. In some places it will be night and will find the believer asleep. In other places it will be early morning and find a humble woman at her early toll. In other places still it will be broad day and summer at their labor in the fields. It makes little difference to the child of God what his immediate occupations are, whether Christ calls him asleep or awake. In an instant he is gone from the presence of the companion of his labor or bed. There will be no time for partings. Some are united in life who are not so in the Lord, companions, partners in businesses, friends, but divided in this, the greatest of all concerns. The above passage of Scripture intimates a private and secret call and flight to an unseen sinner. This is the view taken by many thorough students of this subject, that the Christian is called secretly and before any alarm has been given the world. It may be so. There does not, however, seem to be any definite statement as to such a calling, and the above is not conclusive. On the other hand, the scriptures previously quoted are clear that there is worldwide alarm. The trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised, and we shall be changed. The dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. It seems clear that all happens at the inburst of the day of the Lord upon the world. It is, however, before all or perhaps any of his judgment work begins. It is probable that Christ himself is not yet revealed personally to the world, as in the conversion of Paul the company did not see Christ. The above-mentioned thoughts are confirmed by the scriptures presenting the public aspect of Christ calling his own people. He shall send forth his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect 
from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. There is a line of very searching scriptures which intimate one may come up to the very day and into it and think it is well within self and yet be mistaken and find this out at last. The five foolish virgins are waiting as the others and have lamps and expect to enter into the wedding and are excluded. At the very table of the marriage feast, the guest without the wedding garment was detected and cast out. Lot's wife escaped from Sodom but was destroyed, while he himself and his daughters escaped as by fire. The Lord himself tells us as follows, When once the master of the house is risen up, and hath shut to the door, and ye begin to stand without, and to knock at that door, saying, Lord, open to us, and he shall answer and say to you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We did eat and drink in thy presence, and thou didst teach in our street. He shall say, I tell you, I know not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There are also the warnings of the salt, which has lost its savor, and the allusions to the reprobate, and the castaway, and Esau, who lost his birthright. There is the possibility of a tremendous loss here, and even the loss of the soul. Bunyan pictures a trapdoor to hell from the very gate of the celestial city. Christ will then thoroughly purge his threshing floor. He shall have no Judas this time among the holy band, or any who will turn into such. The event which appears to follow the resurrection of the believer and his gathering together with Christ is thus described. For we must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he hath done, whether it be good or bad. This is not the final judgment in which the world appears before the great white throne. The reasons for so concluding are as follows. First, the direct statements of Scripture. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth him that sent me, hath eternal life, and cometh not into judgment, but hath passed out of death into life. It would place on trial again those who have answered for their sins, in the person of their substitute. Christ, as we have seen, has satisfied every demand for his people and kept their record clean by his intercession. After being justified and the witness of the Spirit given to them and being raised in glory or translated to be again placed on trial for sins which were laid on Christ and borne by him and the claims of divine justice fully met and all declared sufficient, and the blood of Christ satisfactory. After all this, it is inconceivable that there should be either any doubt of their salvation or any other reason for their being placed on trial. 
Second, the saints are to assist at the general judgment of the world. Know ye not, the saints shall judge the world? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? If we are to sit with Christ in the judgment of the world, it is wholly incongruous that we should be placed at the bar of judgment ourselves. Third, nor can we see how it is possible for the departed saint to be brought back from paradise and the presence of Jesus and placed with the abandoned and condemned of earth even to hear the verdict of not guilty, which they heard long ago in life or certainly knew in heaven. Fourth, the appearance of the Christian before the great white throne is not required by the account of that event. It is the dead who there appear, and the believer is not dead then. Fifth, there is no similarity between these two judgments. The word describing the sinner's judgment is not used for the Christians. The issues of the great white throne are final and fatal, and some of the ones we are discussing are not. Six. There is no reason for interpreting this as the judgment of the world, and the further scriptures we shall consider show it is far different in the persons and things judged, and the results, and in the time when it comes. Schmidt writes on this. The judgment of the church is distinguished from the universal judgment, and is thus represented in the parables of the ten virgins and the talents. The former judgment has to do in faithful conduct in Christ's kingdom. Dr. Robert J. Breckenridge writes thus, The resurrection of life, the resurrection of the just, the judgment of the saints, and their reign are altogether distinct from the resurrection of damnation. The resurrection of the unjust and the judgment and perdition of ungodly men, the judgment of the saints is not to ascertain their salvation, but to disclose and to proclaim the special ground upon which each crown is gained, the special grounds upon which each crown was won, all to the infinite glory of the Lord and the unutterable joy of the redeemed. The matters for which the believer is to be judged are the things done in the body, good and bad. The scriptures are full of the promises of reward for faithful doing. The most emphatic of these, and the one further locating this judgment, is the words of Christ himself. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to render to each man according as his work is. Not a service done for Christ loses its reward. For his sake is the criterion by which everything is to be judged. The sacrifices of the believer are then shown and rewarded. It is then the Beatitudes are completely fulfilled. Then those who have laid up treasure in heaven receive it with manifold interest all losses are made good then it is the promises are fulfilled made to him 
that overcometh. It is then the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. At this time, the faithful servants are rewarded for good use of their pounds and talents. At this time, too, is the promise made good. They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. The rewards are of glory, power, and privilege. The glory, as has been shown by Paul, differs as one star differs from another. The power, as the ruler over ten cities, is superior to the ruler over one city. Among the privileges seem to be nearness to the person of Christ. There were two who asked that they might sit on his right hand and left. Christ said this was to be given to those for whom it was prepared. The twelve he promised should sit with me on my throne. In the distribution of rewards, it is not against one that he came in at the eleventh hour. The believer is also to be judged for the things done in the body which were bad. This also looks to services. Paul speaks of such works. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But if any man buildeth on the foundation gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it is revealed in fire. And the fire itself shall prove each man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work shall abide which he built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. There is a searching process here which will be terrible to works done from wrong motives or works left undone. Christ said to each of the seven churches, or rather to the angel or minister of the church, for these seven letters are to the ministers of these churches first of all, I know thy works. The judgment of Christ is of the persons as well as of their works. Saved as by fire intimates a searching personal examination. The Christian life will be gone into by Christ, as we are told by the apostles. Every secret thing not repented of and confessed will be exposed to the shame and mortification of the doer. Paul writes of issues coming up in this judgment. Wherefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall each man have his praise from God. All wrong estimates of men will be set right, and the result will be as Christ has said. Many that are first will be last, and the last will be first.
all idle words, as Christ said, will be accounted for at the day of this judgment. All unsettled quarrels will be brought to account. The fact of the chastising of the unfaithful servant at the judgment of the saints is also taught directly by Christ in the scripture. But if that servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and the maid servants, and to eat and drink, and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he expecteth not, and in an hour when he knoweth not, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint his portion with the unfaithful. And that servant, which knew his Lord's will, and made not ready, nor did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. And to whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom they commit much, of him will they ask the more. Here is certain exposure, condemnation, and more for the fruitless or faithless servant beaten with many stripes does not mean the loss of the soul, but it does mean more than has been generally taught. The stripes are connected with the coming of Christ. The same truth is taught in the parables of the same talents when the unprofitable servant is cast out into the outer darkness. There shall be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ose Hansen thus comments on this. The reference is not to internal condemnation, but to exclusion from the Basilia kingdom, into which the faithful enter. The Basilia is viewed as the region of light, which is encircled by darkness. Concerning the children of light, who are unfaithful to their vocation, it is said they are cast into the skotos, darkness, but as respecting the children of darkness, we are told they are consigned to the per aeon, eternal fire, so that each one finds his own punishment in the opposite element. The judgment and rewarding of the saints continues as long as there are those who are crossed to be so judged. This continues, as we will see, during the whole age of judgments in which the gospel is preached and some are being saved. The number is not therefore complete until the close of the period of earth judgments, and as it seems probable that Christ himself does not appear visibly upon the scene until the close of the judgments upon earth, it is fair to assume he is occupied with his people above. While Christ is dealing with his true followers, the unfaithful church left on earth enters in a great tribulation as Israel did for her rejection of Christ. This is foretold by Christ and also by Daniel. These 
are great afflictive dealings, evidently accompanied by persecution in which the visible church is overthrown, her people scattered and rendered homeless and subjected to great hardships by the enemies of God, who by this time have recovered from their terror and blaming the people of Christ turn upon them in fury. Dr. James W. Alexander wrote to a friend, I was struck with these words of Chalmers to Bickersteth, but without slacking in the least our obligation to keep forward this great cause, I looked for its conclusive establishment through a widening passage of desolating judgments with the utter demolition of our present civil and ecclesiastical structures. The character of the vicars in this fearful struggle and their triumph and deliverance are described in this passage. After these things I saw, and behold, a great multitude, which no man could number, out of every nation and of all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, arrayed in white robes and palms in their hands, and they cry with a great voice, saying, Salvation unto our God, which sitteth on the throne, and unto the Lamb. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, These which are arrayed in the white robes, who are they, and whence came they? And I say unto him, My Lord, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which come out of the great tribulation. And they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They shall hunger no more neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun strike upon them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall be their shepherd, and shall guide them unto fountains of water of life. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. The references to hunger, thirst, exposure, and tears indicate the character of their peculiar sufferings in the great tribulation they endured. The judgments of the day of God fall upon widening circles, as did the giving of the gospel, whose course they follow. First, as we have seen, Christ begins with his own people, then that part of the world called in the apocalypse the third part of earth, this, we think, is that called Christendom, after the removal of God's people. It occupies the same territory ruled by that strange prophetic power, Rome, and exercises the same authority over the rest of the earth. It is a peculiar part of the world when looked at in the long perspective of history. While other parts of the world have had the gospel and lost it, this part of the earth has been blessed by its preservation. It has been so far as locality and autonomy 
and authority and sphere of influence are concerned, the special field of the visible Christian church. Nearly every nation of civilization is professedly Christian. The state publicly acknowledges the Christian religion. Indeed, the ruler of the state is in many cases the head also of the church. For centuries, indeed, for the greater part of the time since the gospel came, the church has ruled the state. The popes were princes and their power supreme. The church still controls the state. The Christian church today rules as truly as it did in the supremest days of temporal power. Mr. Gladstone thus writes, Christianity is the religion in the command of whose professors is lodged a proportion of power far exceeding its superiority of numbers. And this power is both moral and material. In the area of controversy, it can hardly be said to have a serious antagonist. Force, secular or physical, is accumulated in the hands of Christians in a proportion absolutely overwhelming. And the accumulation of influence is not less remarkable than that of force. This is not surprising. For all the elements of influence have their home within the Christian precinct. The art, the literature, the systematized industry, invention, and commerce. In one word, the power of the world are almost wholly Christian. The nations of Christendom are everywhere arbiters of the fate of non-Christian nations. After the true people of God have been removed from the earth, the character and record before God of this highly favored part of the earth will come into judgment. The record of all spiritual work will have gone with God's people as their part. What will be the record of Christendom? It has laid hands on the fairest regions of the world for their good and ostensibly to extend civilization, really to extend national power and trade, and to enrich the merchants of the dominant nations. It has taken, without compensation, from weaker nations their God-given heritage, and in doing so has turned these lands into scenes of bloodshed, the work of the missionary of the gospel has been taken advantage of and has been followed by the traitor and he by the soldier. There has followed them the train of evils which have destroyed these peoples. Opium was forced into China by Christendom. Rum is being poured into Africa by Christendom, where the so-called Christian civilization has appeared. The native races have gone down by its drugs, drinks, and diseases. It has put into the hands of these races arms and material of most diabolical consummate perfection for the destruction of human life. It caused the arming of these peoples with these infernal weapons 
advancing in progress and civilization. It lends them money for this purpose and sends them teachers who instruct them in the satanic art of wholesale butchery of human life and sets them at war with each other and profits by their mutual destruction. There has been given the nations of whole continents in place of their original paganism a bastard Christianity more difficult to overthrow than their pagan faith. It is the scholarship of these lands of Christendom which is attacking so persistently and insidiously the foundations of faith. Infidelity, blasphemy, and profanity are sins only of Christian lands. In these lands is presented such vice as sends the heathen visitors home scandalized at the exhibition. The greatest crime of Christendom, besides her corrupting of the peoples of the earth is her slaughter of the saints. The story of the persecutions is a well and often told tale. Suffice it to say that the blood of the saints of Christ rests upon Christendom. The pagan persecutions lasted but for a short time and destroyed few in comparison, but the so-called Christian nations it is estimated by good authorities, have slain 50 millions of the best and purest followers of Christ. This has never been punished as yet, nor has it been repented of. As Christ said of Israel, that upon that generation would fall all the blood of, of all the saints slain from Abel to Zacharias, the last victim of their fury. So on this Christless Christendom will fall the full and awful measure of the just reward of their destructive work in doctrine, in life, in heathen nations, and at home, all done in the light of gospel and under the reign of grace. The day of her visitation for all this is approaching. The God of heaven and earth is not oblivious to the awful sins of Christendom. That part of the world entrusted with the gospel continuously for 1900 years need not suppose God is so enraptured with its civilization and progress as to shut his eyes to these awful sins against the nations of the earth, against the people of God, and against Christ. As certainly as the hand of God fell upon the Israel in the destruction of their cities and their polity and their dispersion abroad over the face of the earth, so will the judgments of the same God who changes not fall upon the greater Israel to whom he has committed a far greater wealth of material, intellectual, and above all, spiritual privileges. The judgments of the day of God are represented under the symbols of seven sounding trumpets and seven poured out vials, each series commencing in a judgment alarm and followed by an interval of relief from the plagues in which mercy is offered. God's people are gathered out, Satan's power put forth, and the world still further apostatizes. Still greater judgments fall until the last great conflict closes the day.
The first great alarm announcing the judgment day appears to pass away as time goes on and no immediate judgments follow. The world relapses into the former state of indifference. As we shall see is the case all along in the respites, and as we see now in the case of ungodly people, aroused for the time by some alarm, suddenly the sounding trumpets are heard. These call for great afflictions affecting a third part of earth, evidently that we call Christendom. The first four of these are calamities in nature affecting earth and sea and rivers and air. The succeeding judgment appears to be the appearance and onslaught of myriads of satanic beings in some form. Their identity is established by the words. They have over them as king the angel of the abyss. They spare the face of nature, but they spend their dreadful energy upon mankind. Nor do they kill, but only torment. It is recorded, and in those days men shall seek death, and shall in no wise find it, and they shall desire to die, and death flieth from them. The next is also satanic, but more intense. The beings are greater and more terrible in form and fury. The earth in all this time will be an awful place in which to live. Death will be far preferable, but for some reason will be impossible voluntarily. The secession of the trumpet judgments gives a respite in which the following scripture is fulfilled, and the rest of mankind, which were not killed with these plagues, repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils, and the idols of gold, and of silver, and of brass, and of stone, and of wood, which can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they repented not of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their fornication, nor of their thefts. There is to be left on earth a residuum of hard impenitence, which not even the positive proof of the reality of the unseen world and the visitation of dire penalty for godlessness and idolatry and demon worship will change. It seems incredible that such a state could exist during such a time, but we must bear in mind the length of this period, there are to be long respites. During these, mankind, as Pharaoh of old, hardens its heart. We have often thought that if the world could only be convinced of the truth of religion, and perhaps feel some of the evils threatened in the scriptures against sinners, they would repent. God will give all this to the world, there will be no effort spared to bring men to repentance and salvation. Christ had said, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if one rose from the dead. They have this and far more yet are not persuaded. 
there are present on earth all this time certain witnesses for God who are either Moses and Elijah or some of the same spirit and power. To these the world charges all their troubles and finally kills them and makes merry over their death, thinking they are now safe from further evils. In this time there arises a great satanic power which attains worldwide supremacy. It is both political and religious. It is a church state. The head is called in scripture Antichrist, meaning a substitute for and an opponent of Christ. He is to be visible and reigning. He is to charm the world by his superhuman intelligence, graciousness, and ability. The scripture account is as follows. The whole earth wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, because he gave his authority unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and there was given to him authority to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth for blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, even them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And there was given to him authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation. And all that dwell on the earth shall worship him, every one whose name hath not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Under all his glory there is the beast, and scripture so designates him. He has all the characteristics of the wild beast whose names are attached to him. They have insisted on the beast origin of man and glorified the animal. They have rejected God's Son and God and have taken a beast as their supreme ruler. The beast of Revelation is the world power hostile to God. The anti-Christian power is a union of the falsification of the divine worship with the hostile world power, the result of which is pseudo-messiahship. Paul seems to regard the man of sin as an incarnation of the wicked anti-Christian power and as an individual there is also a church for antichrist revelation 17 for he always imitates the work of god he reigns as christ will and has a kingdom as christ has and now must have a spiritual body as christ has in his church this anti-christian church is thus described i saw a woman sitting on a scarlet colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, even the unclean things of her fornication, and upon her forehead a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and of the martyrs of Jesus. 
The church is in a place of earthly splendor and in a full league with Satan. It is the church of Christendom in the day of the Lord. The ecclesiastical system is called Babylon as against Jerusalem, the city of God. It is a concentration of all earthly and churchly grandeur. Having such temples and such worship, and all which is sensuous as the world has never seen, this heresy has its prophet or head who represents his master and works prodigies. End of chapter 6, part 2. Recording by Susan Lamar.